Gresham College presents The Right Stuff, How Do We Make Moral Choices by Professor Gwen Adshead. Good evening, and um, it's very nice to be back here at the Museum of London. Um, my name is Gwen Adshead, and I'm a forensic psychiatrist and psychotherapist. Um, I've given two previous series of lectures here before, and the first one was about violence and what makes people do violent things. And the second series were about how people change their minds. And when I put these lectures together, I conceived them as a set of three, because what I now want to do is to talk a bit about how we make decisions around good and bad, and how we change our minds, how we think about those types of concepts. Um, and I'm going to be speaking very much around how we make moral decisions in healthcare. And that's because I'm a doctor, I'm a working consultant in the NHS and have been for many years. And I've been very interested in what makes a good doctor. So these are the sorts of themes that we're going to be talking about. And we only have an hour together, so I'm not going to be able to cover all these themes. But many of them are, uh, there are some other, many of them are covered in the, in the lecture that are perhaps not covered in the slides today. But I'm particularly, say, I'm particularly interested over the course of these three lectures in what makes a good doctor and how do doctors make good quality moral decisions. And what I'm going to be suggesting to you is that the whole of medicine, really daily clinical practice, involves making moral decisions. And there's a question in my mind about how we now, how we can get doctors to make good quality decisions and what goes into, what goes into that process. I've had a lot of help and time over the, over the last few years, over the last 10 years, a lot of people who've helped me think about these things. I particularly want to acknowledge my colleague, Professor Deborah Bowman, who's Professor of Medical Ethics at St. George's, uh, who's helped me, uh, helped me a lot with this, and also Professor Fulford and Nigel Eastman <coughs> and Dr. Brian Robinson, who gave me, um, very kindly gave me a couple of cases, which I'm going to discuss. Where I want to start is by suggesting to you that there are a number of very significant ethical challenges in, in UK healthcare right now. In fact, I'm, you know, the fact that you're here makes me think that you're already thoughtful about those issues. And they're really every day in whichever newspaper you choose to read. You can find articles expressing concern about healthcare as being delivered in the UK. And but you no, know, I guess the main concern, one of the primary concerns, is about resource allocation. How do we how do we spend the money that we allocate to healthcare? How do we decide how much to allocate? I won't be talking about that. That's health economics. But but how do we decide what to do with the monies <clears throat> and resources that we have? How do we help doctors make complex decisions in relation to resources in healthcare? I think there are also real questions about the character, the ethical character of doctors and what it means to be a good professional, a good healthcare professional. And some of the things I'm going to be talking about may well apply to other healthcare professionals as well, to nurses and various types of therapists. Um, it isn't only doctors, but I'm obviously doctors are a paradigm of a particular type of healthcare professional. And I'm just, and what I'm wanting to raise is, you know, who is making moral decisions, and and how are they, how are they going about about it? So these are some of the concerns that we have about poor moral decision making in medicine. So there's a question about where our values are, and the how we make, say, how we make resource choices. There are real concerns about boundary violations by healthcare professionals. 
uh, probably most people have, you know, are aware of, of sexual, sexual boundary violations by healthcare professionals are the ones that people always pay a lot of attention to. It's probably the only ethical precept that people know for certain is it don't sleep with your patients. And yet, you know, year after year, people, you know, healthcare professionals do get involved in, in sexual boundary violations with patients. But there are other types of boundary violations in terms of influence, in terms of, uh, of behaviours, and that causes a lot of concern. Um, there are particular issues about doctors with behavioral problems. These are doctors who are, you know, causing problems at work, shouting and yelling and just not doing the, not doing the work that they're meant to be doing. And, you know, again, despite the stereotypes of the, you know, perhaps from, uh, from a long time ago. In fact, this is a, this is very unusual behavior for doctors and, and quite what's going on when doctors start to shout and yell. And I've been very privileged to, to work with the Practitioner's Health Programme with Professor Claire Gerarda and had a chance to, to spend time thinking and working with doctors who've got into trouble in various ways. We have lots of concerns about racism and bullying and bigotry um, in the NHS in various, in various forms. We worry about that in terms of relationships between people who are using the service, um, who I'm going to call patients, but you probably know some people, some health service managers would like to call them service users. And, and well, some people like, some people like the term service user, some people really don't. Um, anecdotally, I can tell you that when I used to work at Broadmoor Hospital, we asked the, um, we asked the gentleman there what they wanted to be called, and they all wanted to be called patients. Um, they didn't want to be called service users. Um, but there's a, and there's a question about how, you know, the, the potential for bullying and, and, uh, those sorts of concerns between patients and staff, staff and management, and those sorts of issues. And then, as I said, there's a real issue, which again, we discuss pretty much daily, which is about how do we allocate resources fairly? What is the best way to allocate our resources? And some of you who've listened to Attica Wandi's wreath lectures, excellent wreath lectures, will know that we spend a very large proportion of our health income on the last 10 years of people's lives. Um, and, that's, and that's because in the, often in the last 10 years of our lives, particularly as we're all getting older, we are more likely to be ill, we're more likely to need intensive treatments, and we spend the bulk of, we spend a really very significant amount of our health income on the last 10 years of our lives. And there's a real question about, is that the best way to allocate resources? And if it's not the best way, how do we make those, those sorts of decisions? So one of the reasons that there have been concerns about ethics in medicine really uh, since, as you probably know, since, um, since the classical period in the 4th century BC, we find the Hippocratic Corpus, which is a body of writings about how doctors should behave towards their patients. And this is really because there's a realization of a, about a disparity of power between a doctor and a patient. This is not inherent, necessarily, that it's not about status as much as when we're feeling ill, when we're feeling, no, when we're feeling sick, when we're in pain, we naturally are more vulnerable. And we are seeking out care from someone who has, we hope, the ability and the will to help us. And, but that, that disparity of vulnerability is a very uh, unusual type of relationship in human groups, which you usually only find between patients and parents and their children, but children and their, well, the children and their parents. And of course, as, you, as, you, as I'm sure people here will know, there have often been analogies between patienthood and childhood. And most people will say quite rightly, well, I'm not a child. I'm sick, I'm ill, I'm bedbound, I'm not feeling myself, but I'm not a child. 
Um, and so there's, you know, there was, you know, perhaps in the past, historically, doctors used to take up a rather parental stance towards people who were ill. And we know that that's not helpful. But nevertheless, it's something about how we address the disparities of power, disparities of knowledge, disparities of vulnerability. So what we're talking about here when we're talking about ethics, of course, is we're talking about what you should do, not what you can do. Ethics is the, the, the discourse of ought and should. And as we'll see, in medicine, there are many things that you can technologically do but the question is, from an ethical point of view, should you do them? How, no, what should the good doctor do? And how do we decide what a good doctor ought to do? I think it's uh, worth separating out perhaps some rather basic distinctions, and I apologize if this seems very basic, but I think it is helpful to rehearse how the domain of ethical thinking is different from, other, from perhaps other related d domains. So your, your ethical view is, is, often, is different from what the, le what the law says. You know, the law, law should follow ethics, not the other way around. The law represents the codification of a social moment. Um, and so the law is constantly changing as social values and arguments change. But um, and the law can be helpful sometimes to, when you're deciding what the right thing is to do, as we're seeing in America at present. Gosh, aren't we lucky we have, they have good lawyers in America? Um, and um, but and that's a very nice example of how the law is very important for thinking about ethical ethical decisions. Um, and ethical, I think ethical structures are, are different from religious duties that might arise from faith-based belief systems, but they often. But they, they have relationships, of course, close relationships uh, with religious identity and cultural issues, and I'm not going to say anything more about that. Um, I'm going to leave that to Professor McGrath later on this year. Um, the, it's, ethics is different from the gut from governance and the duty to provide good quality services. Um, and that's a big issue because one of the things that's ha happened in, in health services over the last 30 years has been a real emphasis on what's called clinical governance, on providing good quality services. But that good quality, um, which is usually to do with are there enough staff and what, what's the environment like, still doesn't really get to the heart of the goodness of the healthcare that's provided in terms of the quality of the relationship between patients and, uh, patients and staff. You know, a good hospital is not necessarily the same as a good doctor. And this, I've just reminded myself to tell you what I heard in a very sad story. Some of you will know that the Care Quality Commission um, is the main regulatory body that goes around looking at all, anything that sets itself up as a hospital clinic, or any sort of healthcare clinic. If, you're, if you want to set up as a healthcare provider, you have to be registered with the CQC and you get inspected by the CQC. And the CQC uh, are, um, are very concerned, particularly in mental health, they're very concerned about suicide risk and about ligature points where a person who is feeling distressed might be able to hang themselves. Now, that's, of course, that is a legitimate concern, but there's a lot of emphasis from the CQC teams on finding all the ligature points in a building. And I was told a rather sad story last week about uh, how the CQC had gone to visit a dementia service that had a lovely garden, um, and the CQC uh, visitors apparently found too many ligature points in the lovely garden and so now the people in the dementia service aren't allowed to use the garden anymore. Um, and given that the levels of suicidal attempts in um, aged people with dementia is not very high, that's a nice example of how a good service doesn't have ligature points, 
But on the other hand, we might think a good service really does have all sorts of things, including a garden. This is the other reason that we need to think about medical ethics. Um, and this is the memorial uh, to the psychiatric patients who were murdered at Reichenau Hospital um, in the 1930s. Um, Reichenau Hospital is still going. It's a wonderful hospital. I recommend it as a visit. It's on a vast, uh, vast acreage of land. I have wonderful colleagues at Reichenau Hospital, and they take the memorial to the patients who were murdered very seriously. But it is salutary, I think, to remember that the patients there were murdered by the healthcare professionals that were meant to be looking after them, and that they were murdered um, under a lawful provision um, that the ending of a life that was deemed not worthy of life. And it's to, to prevent those concerns, to prevent those types of atrocities happening again, that the development of medical ethics really started in the post-war period. The development of medical ethics starts really with the trials of the Nazi doctors immediately after the end of the war, but also finds a lot of traction in the civil rights movement generally, in increasing attention to rights uh, for women, rights, of course, for um, African Americans, um, and the beginnings of thinking about rights of patients to make decisions for themselves. It's important here, in terms of medical ethics, that we think about this old distinction that was pointed out by David Hume, which is about a distinction between facts and values. The fact that, that a set of facts is the way it is doesn't mean that you can say what ought to happen. And, and Hume is famous, really, for first describing what is called the naturalistic fallacy. Um, and here's a story that really illuminates how it used to be in medicine. You can see it's quite an old story now, um, of, from 1949. So Mrs. Murray was on the operating table having abdominal surgery, and Mr. McMurkey was the surgeon who was attending to her, and he saw, while he was there, as it were, that her uterus was damaged, and if she fell pregnant, that would be you know, very dangerous for her. So he um, very kindly um, sterilized her by uh, tying her fallopian tubes, um, and then when she came round from the anaesthetic, um, she, um, he told her what she had done, uh, he had done, and uh, Mrs. Murray was very upset. Um, and um, and uh, she sued in negligence, and um, and she got and battery too because she said that she something had been done to her without her consent. Now, Mr. McMurkey's position was that he was doing his clinical best for her; that there was a clinical problem, she was going to be clinically, uh, no, pot potentially at rest. He was clin clinically, technically able to do what was necessary to improve her physical health. He was only thinking about her best medical interests. You know, it might have been risky to wake her up and give her another anaesthetic later. All these clinical thoughts clearly went through his mind. But at no point did what goes through his mind is the point of view of the person that he was operating on. Now, I don't think that Mr. McMurkey was a, a bad man, but I think he was that in his view, the clinical technical values had completely trumped any other type of value. He had derived an ought from an is, that because he could technically prevent her from being at risk in the future, he was going to do it. And getting her view on it didn't seem to be important to him at all. Now, although I'm, I think I'm pretty safe to say that I don't think there are doctors who are behaving quite this way anymore, nevertheless, it's a common criticism of doctors that they don't pay attention to the patient's point of view. And there's also sometimes a sense 
which I'm not sure is completely true, there's sometimes a sense that the world of the patient and the world of the doctor are completely different. And that's a shame because, um, because of course, doctors are patients too. There is no doctor that isn't going to become ill at some time and going to need help. So it's one of the other complications about ethics in medicine is that there's a disproportionate focus on utilitarian outcomes. And by that, I mean the, 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 the utilitarian view that you should always act in a way that brings about the best outcome for as many people as possible. And so really from a, in, in medicine, that it, it almost seems so obvious it doesn't, it's not worth commenting on that someone comes in who's, you know, who's gravely injured or bleeding or got a terrible fever or got a terrible cough or whatever it happens to be. And of course, you're, the, the right thing to do must be to make that situation better. That must be the right thing to do. Now, and put like that, you can see that there's the, whole, the, medicine, med, the ethics of medicine focus very much on good consequences and outcomes. But that one of the difficulties we have in medicine is knowing what outcomes to focus on, what consequences are going to matter most. And both Ray Tallis and, again, Atul Gawande have talked in their wonderful books um, about the, how complex it is to think about which outcomes will matter for which people and who gets to decide. So, for example, Ray Tallis, who's an old-age physician, has written very movingly about situations where he's looking after elderly people where he thinks that to have further active treatment is actually going to cause them more suffering and is not going to bring about a, ma a major change in their condition. Whereas their families may want every single treatment given to them to prolong their lives as long as possible. And you can see here two different sets of outcomes. And, you know, and often the patient's view, it, it may be impossible to articulate, the person themselves may be unable to articulate. What is the right outcome here in a situation like this, and who gets to decide? And similarly, in Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, he describes very, very beautifully, uh, for those of you who haven't read it, a beautiful description of the values of people who are facing, who have developed cancer and who are facing treatment, which is going to be costly to them. And the, how the values of the person who is going to be experiencing that treatment need to be taken into account. And he describes, he gives a particular example in relation to his own father. So there's an issue here then about what happens if you pursue a good outcome, but bad things happen as well. Um, and to some, and, and this is sometimes called the, the doctrine of double effect, which I'm going to come back to talk about a bit more detail later. But it's a very important um, principle in medical ethics, because in medicine there are many times when doctors will carry out an intervention which is intended to have good consequences, and it does have those good consequences, but it also has negative, painful, or harmful side effects at the same time. And the, and the question is, is, how do we talk about those different types of consequences and outcomes? How do we, and where does that fit in with the person who's actually going to be um, going to experience those things. And one of the other ways to think about medical ethics might be to think not just about outcomes, but also on your duties to this person, the person you're looking after as a person, about your human relationship, and also about justice. And the world I work in, where I'm given powers to deprive people of liberty on the basis of the perceived risk that they pose to other people, I'm sure you can see particularly in a heightened context of anxieties about terrorism, that there are real concerns about the use of powers in, in, in mental health, 
for example, to take away people's liberties, and how the principle of justice is very important. So the, um, there, are, there is a lot, been a lot of discussion about medical ethics, again, over the last 60 or 70 years. And in the late 1970s, an approach was developed by two professors uh, called Beecham and Childress, who devised what they called a four principles approach to medical ethics, um, which is a mixture of thinking about people's duties and thinking about consequences. So it's a very sensible, very practical approach to thinking about medical ethics. It starts with thinking about a duty to respect the person as an autonomous person and to get consent and take their views into account. And that also includes the right to be left alone and, and um, a, duty to, uh, and a duty to respect people's privacy. And then there was a duty to respect the process of justice, to deal with people fairly. Um, and then the traditional attention to consequences, trying to do no harm and maximize welfare. Um, and subsequent people have said, well, we've got to think about how far your duty goes. Um, and some people have also argued that actually the f- most important duty of a doctor in terms of their ethical decisions is about respecting autonomy, is to treat the person in front of them as an autonomous person and to respect their views and their values and work with and work with them. And so it has been that the duty to respect autonomy um, is perhaps, as some people have argued, is a, is a primum um, inter pares, is a first among equals. But there are, and several people have suggested there are a bit problems with the principles approaches. For example, we don't know what to do. What happens if your principles and your duties conflict? So, for example, again, in the world that I work in, um, we have a duty often to maximize welfare, but that often means overriding people's autonomy. Um, and in mental health care, that's a very common problem, which I'm going to come, come back to talk about, principally because there are many situations in medicine where people lack autonomy to make choices. And indeed, there is a school of thought that says whenever we're ill um, or unhappy or distressed or in pain um, or frightened or all of these things, that actually our autonomy is compromised. And some people will say, well, I'm not myself. I don't really feel like myself. Um, I don't really feel able to make this very important decision about treatment. I want somebody else to make it for me as part of taking care of me. The model also seems to imply a rather sort of limited relationship between people, which might work for things like surgery. For example, anybody here who's had their hip replaced, you've got a plan, you see the orthopedic surgeon, you make a plan, you wait, you wait, and then eventually you go into hospital and you have your hip replaced and then, you know, you mobilize and so you say goodbye to your orthopedic surgeon and you never see them again. It's a a fairly discreet type of relationship around a fairly discreet transaction about helping you walk better. And it's very effective, and it's great. Um, but, um, but there are many other transactions in medicine. For example, if you're living with chronic pain, or if you're having chemotherapy for a life-threatening illness, where your relationship with your doctor is, is really very different. There are also issues about what happens when there are no good choices. And again, this is often towards the end of life, or people, again, with life-threatening diseases. What happens when there are really there are no good choices in terms of making things better. There might be keeping people comfortable, or there might be all sorts of, there might be a variety. Things will happen, but they all, they all look unappealing to, the, to people. What happens if there are more than two parties involved in a relationship? This is a real issue, obviously, in OBGYN, but also in pediatrics. Um, and again, to some extent, in the end of, uh, in older age, too, where we have people who have 
you know, whose relationships with their people who are looking after them are a very important aspect of their autonomy. And I'm, I'll come back and say a bit more about that later. But the idea that, that people, you can just see someone as a sort of isolated atom is not terribly realistic. Um, and arguably, you know, given that we're all vulnerable when we're unwell in various ways, maybe we really need to pay more attention to justice than anything else, that we might really want our doctors to make sure that they respect the principle of justice um, and treating people fairly um, as being perhaps one of the m most important principles. So just coming back to this idea about what happens um, about autonomy and choice in healthcare, Again, you know, I'm sure all of, or everyone here in this room has had an experience of perhaps being ill or needing treatment of some sort, and you've been able to exercise your choice and your values and have you know, an equal relationship with your doctor around your treatment and so forth. But there are many people whose long-term conditions, and not just in psychiatry, but often various types of brain condition, all sorts of conditions, that actually really change people's autonomy really change it and, and, and alter it or impair it, often for extended periods. For example, anybody who's in a coma, for example, may completely lack autonomy uh, for, for long periods of time. But there is some very interesting work done on people with long-term disabilities where they are dependent on other people, where their autonomy really is, is, is based in a relationship with other people. People's capacity to be autonomous can sometimes be based on their relationships with other people. And again, for those of us who've had children, the, a child's capacity, a young person's capacity to be autonomous is often based on the network of relationships that they have at home, which allows them to develop a capacity to be autonomous. So I think we, we, there's something here about, how, about the extent to which people are, are really autonomous in the sense of just an, an atomistic view of choice. Um, and people often need their relationships with other people in order to make, to make decisions. And yet, however, we want to be respecting people's autonomy because if we seem we want to make sure that we're not treating people merely as a means to an, to an end. So here's an example, and this is a real-life example, very ordinary example from primary care. This is from general practice. So you can imagine... A man called Mr. Jenkins, who has a long history of alcohol addiction, which has had a big impact on his work function, his psychosocial function. This is someone who's often drunk at home, can't really drive a car, sometimes rather aggressive at home, um, not working, um, no, but you know, not, not being in trouble with the law, not, but, you know, or anything as bad as that, but you know, has a long history of alcohol addiction, has a significant impact on his relationships. And his wife and daughter, who are both at home with him, they tell you, and you're the GP, that they've been watering down his drinks for ages. Um, and they ask you not to tell him. So they come and see you, and they say, we've been watering down dad's drinks. Please don't tell him. But when Mr. Jenkins comes to tell you, comes to see you for a you know, regular checkup, because you're worried about you know, all his alcohol-related diseases, he tells you that he's absolutely fine, he can handle his drink. Um, and he doesn't have he doesn't have a problem. He drinks he drinks a, you know, a lot and doesn't seem to have any effect on him. He says, um, and but then when he, when his wife dies very unexpectedly and his daughter takes an overdose, and now Mr. Jenkins is at home with nobody to water down his alcohol. Um, and what is your relationship with Mr. Jenkins now? And this um, say so this is a true story. 
And one of the reasons that I think it's an interesting one is because I think it, re- it shows very nicely how much people's identities and choices are bound up in their relationships with the people around them. Now, this, in this case, it happened to be family members, but it needn't have been family. It might have been close friends or it might have been a carer. But the idea that Mr. Jenkins' capacity to make choices is completely located just in himself, I think, is not very realistic. So, because I think that moral reasoning is not about information processing. Some of the discussions about making moral choices have rather suggested that it's about sort of weighing up information in a very sort of cool, logical way. Um, But in fact, there's not much evidence that moral reasoning is like this at all. In fact, for most of us who've faced any type of moral dilemma, that it, it isn't about weighing up pros and cons in a cool or logical way. In fact, one of the things about a moral dilemma is that it doesn't admit of using logic in that way. There are often multiple possible answers, and it's often not clear you know, which one is the right one, or indeed how you would decide which one is the right one. And I think it's possible to argue that moral reasoning involves a degree of emotional discomfort, um, which is sometimes very difficult for people to, to accept. I think it also involves a reflection on the type of person that you want to be, as well as the type of person that you are, and the values you hold, and, as I've said, the relationships with the people around you. It's, you know, it's not a binary choice between two options, where one is clearly good and one is not. Um, and I'm drawing here on the work of several authors, most, uh, perhaps one of the most uh, the original studies about complexity of, eth- of ethical reasoning around moral choices um, was by Carol Gilligan, where she did some very interesting work about how young women make decisions about whether or not to have an abortion. And what she found was that they spent a lot of time talking not so much about rights um, and not so much about principles, but they talked a lot about the sort of person that they want to be, and the effect of their decision on the relationships with other people around them. And at that time, there are accounts of moral reasoning that put a sort of respect for principles and rights at the sort of top of a hierarchy. And what Carol Gilligan argued was, actually, moral reasoning needs to include this relational aspect to it. Otherwise, it's not real, and it's not rich enough. And my colleague Jacinta Tan did some very interesting work again, on young people who were refusing treatment for eating disorders. And for some of the young women she interviewed were refusing treatment that would save their lives, that they were definitely uh, at risk. Um, and they, what they said to her was that they understood that there was a real risk to their lives, but they felt that their eating disorder was a part of who they were and that giving it up meant giving up something of their identity. And they often found themselves highly ambivalent about the idea of wanting to live, but not wanting to give up this identity of being, uh, of being eating disordered. And that was rather unexpected, because all the, the people she, that Jacinta Tan interviewed you know, were, were perfectly able to cognitively understand what the, what the issue was. But when it came down to their values and the way they thought about themselves as people, it got a lot more complex. And uh, similarly, Kerry Gutteridge in, in Bristol uh, carried out a very interesting study on, on people who self-harm. And she also found very similar um, types of complex, complex, ambivalent thinking going on around people um, when they when they self harm. Another way to think about this is again that moral reasoning is not so much about weighing up choices in a sort of logical, cognitive way, but it's much more bound up with our identity. Um, and Dan McAdams is someone who's uh, 
a professor of sociology who's studied how personalities develop over time, and what he suggests is that that our moral identities are a type of narrative that we develop about ourselves, um, starting usually in adolescence, but building up really across the course till the day we die about um, the kind of person we want to be and where we are in relation to other people and the values of our lives. And it, it's influenced by our, some of our personality and dispositions and traits, and also some of our early experiences uh, with our families and, of course, our culture. But that is all a far cry from the idea of a sort of simple weighing up um, in a logical way. I want now just to uh, run through a couple of slides about... Um, about what happens in your brain when you make moral choices, because one of the things that's happened over the last 20 years is that developments in, in uh, imaging have meant that we can study what happens in people's brains um, when people take various kinds of moral decision. Um, and the first, the take-home message really is um, that different parts of your brain are involved for moral and non-moral decisions. And that's interesting as a start, because it does seem like... What is happening when you make a moral decision is very different from making a, a non-moral decision. Um, and that there are different kinds of moral reasoning. So, for example, a review published last year of many, many studies, over I think over 100 studies, looking at what happens to people's brains when they take moral decisions, shows that... Um, that your brain, your brain is particularly active when you switch from a first-person perspective to a third-person perspective. So you can think about things from your point of view, but your brain, but things change in your brain when you take a third-person perspective, and it varies depending on the amount of emotion involved in the decision. And that's important if you think about most healthcare decisions are decisions that can be viewed from different perspectives and often involve a great deal of emotion. So here is um, one of the first uh, studies just to make the point that different parts of your brain um, are active for different types of experience depending on whether you consider them to be moral or not. So, for example, here you stub your toe um, against, uh, you, you ram, you, you put your foot against a, 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 against a cupboard um, and that activates one set of parts of your brain, but in the bottom you are using your foot to squash somebody else's foot uh, quite deliberately um, and different parts of your brain light up. Now, um, if you're anything like me, you may be simply very relieved that this is happening because I think I had always assumed that bits of my brain were active when I was making decisions and I, um, and I would have been very surprised if bits of your brain were not active. And it, you know, and, and it is, you know, we have known, you know, since we were able to articulate these things that these are different types of decision. But it's, you know, perhaps it's just important to, to, to remind ourselves that when you take a moral decision, for example, to deliberately step on somebody's foot, you are doing something that's a bit different from when you stub your foot against a, a desk. So um, and this is a study which is looking, again, at different types, um, uh, different types of, of moral, uh, moral decision-making. Um, and again, the, the, I, I won't go into any detail, but the key issue here is that the, is that one type of decision-making is sort of rather sort of basic type of, you know, is this good or is this bad? 
But the sort of red decision-making is a bit more complicated. How would it look from other people's perspectives? Um, and um, and, pre- and con- the conventional type of decision, again, is what shall I, what's the right thing to wear at a dinner party, for example? What's the, you know, do I use the right type of fork? Um, you know, can I go out to dinner in my pyjamas? These are sort of social conventions. These are the, the, a distinction between conventional decisions as opposed to moral decisions. And again, just to make the point that different things are happening in your brain when you take these different types of decision. Um, and again, different parts of your brain light up depending on whether your, your decision-making is personal or impersonal. And again, that's incredibly important when it comes to thinking about healthcare decisions and decisions about treatment, because these are, of course, very personal decisions. And the idea that you could look at them impersonally, in an impersonal way, doesn't seem um, terribly, uh, terribly uh, credible. And in fact, you know, the, the, these sorts of studies suggest that actually different things happen in your brain. Even if you tell yourself you're going to be very cold and very cool and calculated and impersonal and impartial, actually, yeah, it, when it comes to a personal decision making, things involving people, you know, you are likely to be thinking in a different way. Um, and this is just again another study which looks at the different types of emotion that are that are activated when we take different kinds of moral decision. And that's important again, just really to reinforce this point about the idea that moral reasoning doesn't involve emotions. Um, my key point here is that moral reasoning must involve the emotions. Um, but in the world that I work in, I know that people's disturbing emotions can have a big impact on the moral decisions that they make. Um, so taking emotion seriously becomes a key part of ethical reasoning. So I want to look, and I want to look now at what the impact that uh, the impact that, that there is on emotions in different roles and relationships. Because clearly, we have different types of emotion in the context of our different relationships with different people. We have different ethical perspectives depending on our relationships. Um, and the types of relationships, the degree of closeness, the degree of mutuality. And we might have different roles. We have different roles in relationships. Um, so, for example, again, this work by Carol Gilligan, who suggests that we, yes, we need to take justice seriously, but we also need to think about the ethics that arise in the context of relationships. And this is just, um, a, st- this is just a study which, again, demonstrates that you know, people's brains, when thinking about justice and thinking about welfare and care of other people, are doing, your brain is doing different things. And that is important philosophically, I think, because the, you know, philosophically, we do think that these are different types of ways of thinking about a moral problem, the ethic of justice and an ethic of care. And it is interesting that it seems that we are doing different things. Different things are happening in our brains when we take those types of decisions. So I want now to talk about something which, again, may be very familiar to, to, to some of you, which is the, the trolley problem. And I've, um, I've used uh, David Edmund's very nice book called um, Would You Kill the Fat Man, um, which, if you haven't read it, is a very nice, has a very nice discussion um, of the ethics of, the ethics of doing harm whilst intending good. So um, this is a thought experiment um, by, that started with Philippa Foote, who was a philosopher in Oxford in the 1960s. Um, and this is the thought experiment. There's a tram, you USA a trolley, which is out of control, and it's about to hit and kill five unfortunate people who are stuck on the track. But you 
can change the tram's course by pulling a lever, um, which will move the trolley onto another track, which will only kill one person. And what will you do? Will you pull the lever? Uh, I'm not going to go around the room and ask people, but, but, um, um, but um, I can tell you that um, the, the studies that have been done uh, suggest that most people say yes. Most people say that they would, they would pull the lever. Um, that, and this is really about the idea that it's permissible to carry out an action which has a good intention. So in this case, you want to save five people, but there's a very unfortunate side effect of your intention to save five people, which is one person, di- one person dies. So the doctrine of double effect has this idea that if you're intending the good consequences, it's morally justifiable even if your action has some bad consequences. And that is really a very important principle in medicine. And it comes up, um, of course, with any high-risk surgery, chemotherapy, palliative care. Um, Some of you will be old enough to remember the case of Dr. Leonard Arthur, um, who was charged with murder. Um, He was a pediatrician who gave a very small baby who was born prematurely, multiply handicapped, who was going to, uh, who was, was going to die but couldn't survive. Um, and he gave the baby um, some type of pain relief in case the baby was suffering, um, and the baby died, and Dr. Arthur was charged with murder. Um, he was, it was alleged that he had intended to kill this baby by giving the baby analgesics. Um, and I'm glad to tell you that he was acquitted of murder, but that's a nice, that is an example of the complexity of these things. And in Dave Edmund's book, he gives another very painful, painful example um, about a man, a doctor called Dr. Rajuk, um, who was looking after a young man who had died. Who was, uh, there was a young man who was going to die. Who had a, he'd had a fatal, brain, a fatal head injury. He was going to die, and his parents had agreed that all his organs could be used, and five people were waiting uh, for uh, the young man's organs. Um, but the young man didn't die. He just didn't die. Um, the medical pronouncements were wrong, and he just didn't die. He remained breathing. They took him off the ventilator. He remained breathing. But, of course, these things were time-sensitive. Um, and uh, Dr. Razouk gave the young man, um, again, gave him analgesia, um, and because he didn't know whether he might be suffering or not, and he was also charged with attempted murder. Um, it was also alleged that he was trying to hasten this young man's death in order to benefit five other people who are going to benefit from the organs. Again, I'm glad to tell you Dr. Razouk was acquitted, um, and they, you know, the, the young man died, but he died sadly too late for any of those five people to benefit from his organs. So those are the types of complexity of case and moral decision-making that we're thinking about, and we can only imagine the feelings and the different perspective of the different perspectives of the players involved. The young man himself, his family, the five people who are going to be affected, their families, the feelings of the doctors and the nurses looking after the dying man. Um, All those feelings and thoughts coming into that moral decision-making process. And the, you know, the, the, the law is very clear, and our ethics, ethics of medicine is very clear. A doctor can't bring about a death to benefit other people. But the question of whether a doctor, of course, can bring about death at a patient's, at a, at a person's request to ease their suffering is, of course, a very potent question, debated very vigorously right now. The other side of the trolley problem is this, which is where you... You can, you can save your five people by pushing. 
a fat man um, onto, a, onto a track. And what's interesting about this is that people will pull a lever, but they don't like pushing somebody. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and the reason for this is really not as, you know, there are a number of questions, reasons why this might be, but at least one, one, one obvious reason, people just say they don't feel comfortable. They don't feel comfortable pushing somebody, even if it is to save five lives. They don't mind pulling a lever, but they don't like pushing somebody. They don't like the physical contact. Um, and that doctrine of double effect doesn't protect them from anxiety, even though they know they've got a good intention there. Um, it doesn't protect them from the anxiety of doing harm. And I think also people don't push the fat man because they're worried about concerns about fairness and justice. And that if, 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 if anybody, let alone somebody who's you know, slightly overweight, um, can get can get sacrificed to save other people. Where does that leave all of us who are slightly overweight? Um, you know, and the question about 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 justice, and you know, and the question also about the vulnerable more generally. Um, we're pretty vulnerable if it can be left to people to decide that this person can be sacrificed. So I think these are some of the reasons people don't don't push the fat man, um, but they are willing to pull a lever. Um, and this is a nice, uh, an interesting study, which, um, which is about um, looking at people who are prepared to push somebody onto uh, onto a track to, to to save other people's lives, which is a which is a, a sort of crude utilitarian idea, and that is, you know, that it must be the right thing to do to save five lives, even if you deliberately kill somebody. Um, and what's interesting about that is that. Um, the people who score highest for supporting that view, that it's all right to kill one person to save five people, are also people who tend to score more highly on a psychopathy scale. Um, and that would make sense because um, often people, um, that, that whatever, whatever psychopathy is, and it's a complex concept, but whatever it is, it involves a lack of anxiety about things. Um, and another study more recently suggested that people who are high in psychopathy are not so worried about doing harm. So how do we deal with these challenges? Well, at present, um, in medicine, what we do is we, we, we've increased the law and we've increased the regulation and the governance. We have lots of, in mental health, we have lots of things about called tribunals. But in general medicine, we have these lots of increased regulation and monitoring. Doctors have to be revalidated every five years. Um, there are codes of ethics. There are clinical ethics committees. And the employing trusts have policies about this, that, and the other. Um, but I think what we really don't have yet is a proper attention to ethical decision making in, the, in sort of daily, as part of the daily nature of healthcare relationships, as part of the conversation that patients and doctors need to be having really from the moment they meet and the moment it, that, that, that the values and the morality of the decisions that are being made needs to be, I think, much more explicit. Um, and my colleague um, Jennifer Radden at, uh, at Harvard has, um, together with John Sadler in Texas, has argued that we need to be developing doctors' moral identities as good people. We need to be encouraging doctors to 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 be virtuous, um, and that and that will that will be particularly so in those cases where people are vulnerable, where patients are vulnerable, and where patients are sharing very intimate information about about themselves. Um, and we need to, we can build up virtuous character through a process of reflection and discussion, self-reflective process, getting people to talk about cases that generate moral and emotional discomfort. 
Um, and these are some of the things, of course, we want from our doctors. We want them to be empathic and compassionate and able to take different perspectives. We want them to have wisdom and knowledge and to strive for integrity and honesty, to be respectful of other people's vulnerability. We want them to be thoughtful about the exercise of power. They do sound like lovely people, these doctors. Um, um, but how are we going to get them there? How are we going to develop such a, a, a person? How does anybody get to that sort of state of mind, um, particularly when doctors are working in non-ideal services? Um, I'm routinely asked when I go to court about whether some treatment can be provided for the people I'm talking about, and I often have to say there is no treatment to be provided because the cuts to services are meant that there is no treatment available. Um, and I wonder where my duties, where my integrity lies when I'm giving, uh, when I'm giving uh, t testimony like that. And that's a particular issue now that nearly all doctors, the vast majority of doctors, are employees. They are no longer independent professionals in the way that they used to be. They are nearly all, um, any, any hospital doctors are employees, um, and GPs are, are, um, are also often working in businesses. So I think really what I'm wanting to encourage us to think about is about you know, taking value seriously about communication in medicine and the exploration of, of where people agree and where people disagree, um, trying to make it more possible for doctors to articulate difficult feelings, not just doctors and patients to our difficult, difficult feelings, um, and for different personal and different perspectives. And thinking about different types of relationships. I think we have that the medicine is now moving away from a doctor knows best to, and it moved away a long time ago really, to something that's much more about sharing and about accompanying a person through changes of identity that come through, old, come through sickness and diseases and injuries. And um, I won't stay with that, but I just wanted to, to, before we come to an end, just to think about how we make better moral decisions um, and about the importance of developing a narrative approach. And I think that there's something here about the process of discussion, about people being honest um, and being able to make time and space for an exploration of different perspectives about different, about different voices and different values, not just outcomes and not just action. Because that can sometimes be the driver, I think, for many healthcare professionals. Let's do something. Let's do something now to change, to bring about this good outcome that I can see. But for those of us who are experiencing illness or disease or injury or pain, we may not want our doctors to do something. We may want them to be something with us in order to explore what we, not we, what we want to happen next um, and how we explore, how we exercise our agency and autonomy about our experiences. And that's particularly true now because so many people have long-term conditions or live with long-term pain or have experiences of illness and disease that fundamentally change their identity. Um, and that is some, some, a situation where they, people need their doctors to be able to have conversations about what it's like to be them. Um, I won't stay with that one. I just want to show you one um, a different... This, I want to end with this example, really, because this, again, this is a true story um, about a woman who, highly articulate, thoughtful person, who discovered that she, ha that she came from a family with Huntington's disease. And for those of you who don't know, Huntington's disease is a very, is a very tragic disorder. 
in which if you acquire the gene for Huntington's disease, um, you have a 50-50 chance of developing um, of, de you have, uh, of developing um, a type of dementia which you can't recover from. You're basically your, uh, and people with Huntington's disease often die die early. And it's a dominant gene. Um, so if you have it, you would. If you have the gene, you will definitely develop the illness. And if you have children, they'll have a 50/50 chance of getting it. Um, and we can now do tests to determine whether you whether you have the gene for Huntington's disease. Um, and it's uniformly fatal. People vary how long they live with it, but they often develop very you know, terrible um, dementia before they die. So, um, and in this particular case, there was a Gloria who discovered that she um, uh, was positive for Huntington's disease, and she wanted to die. She decided that she was going to kill herself. And this is quite common with people with Huntington's disease. Um, they decide to kill themselves. She was married, she had children, and she was referred by her GP to the local psychiatrist because she wanted to kill herself. And in psychiatry, we take suicide very seriously. We think of suicide as being a type of medical emergency. We take suicide very seriously. But at the interview, the psychiatrist was in, found a person who was very thoughtful, very sad, but absolutely determined. She was absolutely determined to kill herself. She had all the information. She knew exactly what she was doing and why she was doing it. Um, and her partner came to the, to, to the interview too, and he begged the psychiatrist to detain her in hospital under the Mental Health Act to stop her from killing herself because it was uh, impossible to prevent her suicide. And this, although you know, not a terribly common case in, in mental health, I think is a, is a beautiful and painful example of the type of complexity of, of, uh, of moral decision um, that doctors and patients face together. And this story, I think, is very much about someone who is exercising choice around their identity and their values. But, and we see here a situation where the doctor has the legal, has the legal powers to detain her, to stop her. And he can, so he, that doctor, the psychiatrist who saw her, did have the legal power to take her into hospital against her will and to take steps to prevent her killing herself, um, at least in the short term, for the length of the detention anyway. But the question is, should he do that? What is the right thing to do in this circumstance? What was the right action for the doctor? What's the right action for Gloria? What's the right action for Gloria's, for Gloria's family? And I'm sure you can see straight away that it would be a brave person who would say, oh, I know what the right thing is to do. I know what the right stuff is in this, in this type of very painful dilemma. So I'm going to stop here and give us a little time, perhaps, for questions. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.